This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. He is senior religion editor for The Huffington Post. I spoke with him on October 5th from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in Argo Studios in New York City. This interview is included in our show, Occupying the Gospel. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. I don't know. I hear somebody. Great. Hello. Hello. Hey. Paul? Hi. Hi. <laughs> I heard you breathing. I'm breathing. I yeah. know that's what I'm worried about. I'm going to be breathing. <laughs> I hope I don't breathe. I'm going to stop breathing right now no, for the next hour and no, a half, no, no. okay? Don't worry about it. Worry and about it. if your breathing is too loud, we can improve it. I wish people would improve. That would be so great if people could improve me so easily. Yeah, no, this whole thing of digital editing, we could all use digital editing in our lives, <laughs> in our marriages. It'll make yes. everything okay. better. I, I'm st- from now on, I'm being digitally edited. That's okay. it. I'm demanding it. Brad, digitally edit me. No, he would start immediately. Let's forget it. No. Paul, hey, hey, Chris, it's Paul. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Paul, Good. I just want to give you a quick note that be careful of like looking away from the mic. Move your paper like to your left or something so that you're looking right at the mic. That way we'll get a Great. nice clean. Great. Will do. Thanks. So uh, do we have 90 minutes? Yeah. We, we, we'll go somewhere between an hour and hour and a half and... The great thing is, because of the wonder of digital editing, we get to have a real conversation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be linear. And, uh, you know, it can go where it takes us. And if you want to come back to something or say something again or say it differently, you have that freedom. Great. Okay. <laughs> How was your uh, the rest of your trip in Canada? Oh, it was uh, it was beautiful. It was a little like difficult because <laughs> I'm so tied to this um, job that uh-huh. being on the um, being actually in the middle of Ontario where there is no um, internet whatsoever uh-huh. should be relaxing. <laughs> and some at some point <laughs> in my life it will be again. It's right. just right now it's not. So it was great. It was great. I was very glad to do it. It was great to be with my dad and you know, that was very special. Yeah, I, I, I think about that. I think about the kind of job you have and that some that people have these days that are online based. You do you, I mean, I guess you get to sleep at night, but you probably have to be checking email all the time between that. Yeah. Yeah. Last night, I actually got up in the middle of the night to complete a video that had started uh. the day before because uh, I needed to do it. So it's it's it is a it's an overwhelming uh, force, but mm. it's also an opportunity, and I I love it. I I thrive on it, and uh, you know you just keep going and yeah. feel you. It's it's a constant connectivity, which of course is has its positives, and it also has its downfalls. Yeah. Yeah, like everything. Like everything. Okay. My, you mean I turn my volume down? Sorry, I'm talking to Chris behind the glass. I'm not talking to God, Paul. I'm talking to <laughs> God. Will digitally edit you? Don't worry about it, Krista. <laughs> That's right. Just keep Unfortunately, going. Unfortunately, God does not do that. Um, <laughs> okay. All right, we can go. So I want to start with you, where I start with everyone. Um, and uh, I think we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I, w- I want to begin with um, just hearing a little bit about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. 
Was there one? What was that like? Well, I was raised in the church because my mom was a believing Christian, and my dad loved my mom and wanted to do what she did. And so we were raised in the church. We went to a Presbyterian church. Pretty mainline, very nice place. It's actually, uh, I just learned, is going to be uh, the place where they ordain the first gay uh, minister in the Presbyterian Church. Really? So, yeah, Covenant mm-hmm. Presbyterian in Madison, Wisconsin. Who knew? It didn't seem so radical at that point when we were going there. But, um, you know, so I went to church. I, um, you know, went through Sunday school and everything. And then I'm the only person in the history of the Presbyterian Church to actually fail confirmation. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> I just didn't go. I, I thought it really didn't matter. So I would say, hey, mom and dad, I'm going off to a confirmation. Uh, then I'd go to my friend's house and come back around the right time. And, <laughs> and then the day before confirmation was supposed to take place, I showed up. And the pastor was like, almost all of you will be confirmed tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> And so that was the first time I realized that you actually have to kind of show up uh-huh. in religion. Like it was a real, you know, and then I decided, oh, my God, I really want to do this. So I ended up like going through these kind of semi-private classes with the pastor and being confirmed. And I wrote my first um, theological essay, which is um, God is my friend, uh, which mm. uh, actually made me cry when I read it out loud. And it was, you know, so it, it all it all pointed towards actually there being a there there. Right. Although I had thought there wasn't. Hmm. And you, of course, had in your DNA and in your family history um, this great American Christian religious figure of Walter Rauschenbusch. Where, how, much, how aware of that were you, of him? Um, how did you become aware of him growing up? You know, we really weren't particularly aware of him. I think we may have said one of his prayers at Thanksgiving. He has beautiful prayers. If people are interested in Walter Rauschenbusch, they should first go to the prayers because they really are uh, the right the right mm-hmm. door to understanding uh, who he was. So he has a he had a beautiful Thanksgiving uh, prayer that we would read on Thanksgiving or occasionally <laughs> at Grace. Um, but you know, my my parents were very reluctant to kind of get into. Fa- these, these kind of well, you have this important great grandfather, mm-hmm. or well, and you also had uh, two important great grandfathers, right? And the other, was, right? Uh, and so, and so yeah. The truth is, is that because we were we would go in the summers to Justice Brandeis's summer home, which you know was is was um, in the family. Brandeis was actually much more the kind of overwhelming figure, and okay. and I, I knew much more about Brandeis than I did uh, Rauschenbusch. And it was only later, actually, in seminary and and even beyond, when I started to read Rauschenbusch, and really began to actually resonate with you know what his message was, and found myself just loving his writing style and what he had to say, and he felt so fresh and contemporary and funny and heartrending. And so that's when I really began to realized that um, actually I kind of had a kindred spirit with him hmm. uh, and and really felt like I wanted to um, learn more. So I, you know, did some of my own research. And fortunately, there have been some great biographies of him. So uh, but it wasn't, you know, it really wasn't a part of growing up. It, it was it was, uh, you know, Rauschenbusch was in the background. And he, so Brandeis was Jewish. And uh, I, I think it's, it's so interesting um, and must have been a, kind of a big deal that 
I guess, Brandeis's daughter uh, married Rauschenbusch's son. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah. Inter- uh, my grandmother was uh, Louis Brandeis's daughter, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Brandeis, and my grandfather was Paul Rauschenbusch, um, Walter Rauschenbusch's son. And um, they met at... Uh, University of Wisconsin, um, Elizabeth came out for law school because none of the East Coast uh, schools would accept a woman, mm. uh, even though she was the daughter of a Supreme Court justice. And, wow. Um, and they, you know, they they had an amazing relationship. Um, I once had a woman come up to me. I was speaking uh, at uh, Chautauqua in upstate New York, and a woman came up to me uh, and said, your great-grandfather Brandeis must be rolling in his grave because, you know, because I was a minister and he was Jewish. And the truth is, is that Brandeis actually was very happy with the, um, the marriage, um, you know, he was very. He he knew of Walter Rauschenbusch. He was very impressed. They were in some ways on the same circuit. Although Walter um, died younger and was older than Brandeis, so they were very much you know part of this progressive movement in the early part of the 20th century. And they were definitely uh, Brandeis was well aware of who Walter Rauschenbusch was, admired him, admired his son. There was never any talk of this in the family whatsoever. It was always just a, a great match. Huh. It, only later did I realize that um, kind of what a big deal it was for Jews uh, that Louis Brandeis's daughter married a, a goy. <laughs> yeah, right. Then, so so let's talk about this person of Walter Rauschenbusch because he really was uh, a very important figure um, in the early, very early twentieth century, um, and not as well remembered. Uh, uh, maybe maybe partly because he died. He came before those two world wars, and we we tend now, I think, to have a a, a more vivid memory of, of figures like Niebuhr, who spoke to that experience of war um, in the mid-century. But um, you know, he was an exemplar and a very strong voice in the roots of American Protestantism, and indeed, um, what it called itself evangelicalism, um, that were socially activist. This social gospel movement that people roughly date between something like 1880. 1920. Say something about that, that 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 world that he helped create and that he that he came out of. Well, you know, talking about the world he came out of is really important because uh-huh. Walter was the seventh generation of pastors who um, his father came over as a Lutheran missionary to the United States, uh, became a Baptist. Uh, taught at a, a German Baptist seminary, and uh, Walter was raised in a very evangelical atmosphere. Uh, went to seminary, and you know it was a time when people were beginning to talk about historical critical method. People were beginning to talk about well, what is the gospel saying to the situation in the world? Uh, Rauschenbusch's first pastorate was in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, which was at that time very aptly named. Uh, wow. It was a really rough part of the world. And he dates his real conversion to that experience. He His first book was dedicated to the people of that pastorate who opened his eyes for a second time because, you know, the what he said about that time, he said, I just kept burying too many babies, the little boxes, they broke my heart. And so he had to, he went down there to kind of, you know, transform their spirits and evangelize in a traditional way. And then he began 
um, determined because he said, well, what does the gospel say about the lives of these people that are being crushed by poverty? I have to, I have to as a pastor, I have to deal with this. I have to deal with the body, the, mm-hmm. these lives. And he went back to the Bible and he has this great parable, like uh, a, a, a man was walking through the woods and heard and all around him were the warbling of uh, of songbirds and the wooing of, of of all these birds and and yet he didn't hear any of it because he was a botanist and I think that <laughs> this uh. is a great metaphor for how we approach the Bible huh. you know we, we we see there what we are expecting to see and then when he went back with these eyes opened by you know the suffering of his congregation he saw all these calls for social renewal and the the idea that the gospel also dealt with the person and with the lives on this earth not just afterlife but this life i think the the on the title page of uh, christianity and the social crisis he, he wrote uh, he he quote, quoted those lines um, thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth <laughs> And uh, from the of the Lord's Prayer, Um, and of course we always go on to say Christians go on to say, on earth as in heaven. But it was that will God's will on earth that came to really consume him, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was all about the bringing heaven onto earth and feeling like that if we transformed our lives, if we transformed the way we live with one another, within our own hearts, but then also in the the the, the places between us that also need redemption, that that this heaven would would be um, moved towards on earth. It was never he you know he he understood that this was not like some sort of utopian dream and that he said you know the kingdom of heaven is always coming but it was a process that we were meant to move towards just like redemption is in the in the personal you're always trying to do better and so for him it was um it was so important this idea of the kingdom of god on earth and he felt like we had just completely missed the boat and so Mm -hmm. so that this was his life's work is to try to try to figure out a way to bring God's message of love and solidarity onto this earth. I, I just want to, I mean, you know, I want to keep going with this, but I, I do want to let you emphasize something that you mentioned and that comes through really, especially in your writing about your great-grandfather and also some other writing that, you know, the social gospel came to be associated with um, this discussion of applying the gospel to social problems, but it was really those, it was those experiences that he had, those very personal experiences as a pastor of the suffering and death of children that seems to have just, just absolutely taken over and sent him on this path. That's at the heart of everything that he was ever worked for was at the you know, the suffering of children and trying to figure out what are we supposed to do about that and that's what i always say today it's what does the gospel say about suffering and that you ha- you cannot ignore that question and that's what everything grew out of that kernel of truth that the gospel is here to alleviate suffering the gospel is here to transform that suffering into redemption into mm-hmm. liberation now he took the um, Old Testament prophets as his as his guide and, and as his models, and I, I love something that he wrote about them. Um, just the way he wrote that, Pe- uh, figures like Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they lived in the open air of national life. Every heartbeat of their nation was registered in the pulse throb of the prophets. <laughs> 
Isn't that great? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, and he and he thought that Jesus was, you know, the heir of that that tradition, that Jesus was the heir and the culmination of the prophetic tradition, and that Jesus had kind of brought that into fruition, and that to understand Jesus, we had to look at the prophets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could imagine somebody listening to this and saying, well, we've had Christians um, enter public life, and, and what that has meant is, is entering uh, political life. Um, and it's associated with a number of issues. Um, I, I think it's important, though, to, to really, um, you know, to paint this canvas here because, in fact, Walter Rauschenbusch in many ways was quite a different kind of character and the social gospel was different. I mean, so let's just flesh that out. I mean, he, he, he had this insistence on um, a, 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 that it's wrong to think of religious morality as the only thing God cares about. He said the social problems... Are moral problems on a larger scale? Yeah, I th- I think one of the important things about Rauschenbusch is that he was also one of the part of that movement, which was was actually it was interesting. It was it was different um, Protestant traditions uh, working with one another to solve common problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, so. Let me see. What do I want to say about that? I want. Um, I think Rauschenbusch was in some ways a skeptic of religion, okay. just as he was a po- a pastor and uh, you know a, a national figure on the religious scene. He he didn't de facto take the authority of religious figures. He said they they always had to be set up against a test of how they would bring people together. Will they make us mm. a more cohesive, more loving, more positive society? Mm. He also said that about Christians. You know, it's people can be converted and they'd be worse than they were before. Jesus said that about, you know, the, the Pharisees making converts and making them twice as fit for hell. So it wasn't just a fact of being more religious. It wasn't a fact of being more religious like a certain kind of religion, Baptist or anything like that. It was really about how are you converted to this wider project of making a more beautiful world where actually heaven is created on earth and we can identify that by people living together peacefully and with equanimity and with more equality. Mm-hmm. Now, and the, the he was, um, I don't know, I, I know you've been inside this history, but, but this, there was also, um, a rift that developed in that time, right? I mean, there was there was some parting of the ways among between different kinds of Protestants, and in fact, um, there re- a retreat from from public life, which in fact was, um, in some ways, those were the forebears of of today's evangelicals who who reentered public life in the last few decades. Can you can you say a little bit about how that how that worked and what the dynamics and issues there were? Well, it's interesting. When Rauschenbusch started, he, you know, for instance, people don't know, but he actually translated some of, uh, let me see, what do I want to say about that? When Rauschenbusch started, he had the intention that all of this would hold together. 
that very, you know, the people who were interested in a very sort of personal gospel would have their hearts expanded into this social vision and that that others who maybe hadn't thought about the personal element of the faith might also hold that, you know, kind of in concert with okay. one another. And then and then unfortunately a split developed and you know for instance the social gospel was never Rauschenbusch's term he didn't like that term oh, I didn't he know later that. used it yeah mm-hmm. he, he he later used it in his last book mm-hmm. but he always resisted he said it's just the gospel there is no social gospel or private gospel it's mm-hmm. just the gospel mm-hmm. Um, but then you had these uh, divisions, and and people felt uh, like it was just uh, you know that the, there was no transcendent value to it, that it was just Marxism, or you know, or on the other, and, and so people forget that Rauschenbusch actually worked with um, Moody, you know, a very kind of right, Dwight Moody, yeah, yeah, you know, to 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 he translated some of his uh, his works into German, and so you know, I mean, there there was a, there was a cohesion there at the beginning that Rauschenbusch it was. It broke his heart. I mean, you know, his his father. He's, you know, all a lot of his colleagues at the seminary. There was a really big effort for him to bring keep people together. But afterwards, there there was a strong split. And what's so interesting for me today is many of the descendants of those people who split off, you know, from the social gospel into fundamentalism or evangelicals are now actually some of the most interested people in what the social elements of the gospel have to say. These young, mostly young evangelicals who are all of a sudden saying, wait a second, what does this have to do with the poverty I see around me? And they become very active. So what I'm really actually thrilled about right now is this kind of in a sense, reuniting of the social and the private um, religious fervor and and in some ways working together to, to really see some of the common um, issues that we all want to face, such as, you know, such as hunger. I mean, a very basic one, poverty. Right. right. And, you know, when I look at, again, at, at, at um, Christianity and the social crisis, you know, uh, I, I see actually... Of a, a more subtle critique than 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 simply, which is not simple, but his critique of you know inequity, inequality of wealth and you know human suffering. He wrote, um, "If the question of distribution of wealth were solved for all society and all lived in average comfort and without urgent anxiety, the question would still be how many would be at peace with their own souls." And have that enduring joy and contentment, which alone can make the outward things fair and sweet and rise victorious over change. Which, in a way, is the kind of impulse that's behind, you know, what I experience and I think you experience in your spaces as a, as a new kind of curiosity and longing for, for spirituality, for, for, for inward looking and for contemplation of what really matters, whether you have it all or you don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 both, and uh, and he was very acutely aware of that. It's you know you you have to provide this living water or this this spiritual um, aliveness for people, awareness, and so for him it was never you know he was kind of painted as this you know pure <laughs> Marxist, and and that was never the case with him. Uh, but but in, in many cases with Rauschenbusch, other people. Um, wrote the history of him, and so people have read that history, and they haven't actually investigated Rauschenbusch. It's 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 true also of Niebuhr's critique of Rauschenbusch around sin, right? You know, so, so, so Niebuhr that, came along a little bit later, and 
I, I suppose there the criticism is that, I mean, Nina Rue is all about realism and, and that it was an, a critique of an idealism of, of Rauschenbusch. Yeah. Yeah, but but if you look at if you look at Rauschenbusch, you know, he talks so much about sin and the power of sin, and how and the real you know that he really confronted it head on. Like, what do we do about sin? Our, and and so the the Niebuhr, I, I guess Niebuhr kind of painted all of the social gospel with with a very broad brush, but. The truth is, is that you know Rauschenbusch was really wrestling with sin, and he saw sin. I mean, he saw sin in the World War One. He saw sin in Jim Crow slavery. I mean, he 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 named it, mm-hmm. uh, and he also he also said this is a very powerful force. It's like a, we we it, to do, to accomplish anything, we have to understand sin. And so, in some ways, this you know going back to your you know what you said about. If everything was perfect, we would still need to be aware of right. the spirit moving in our lives, so that we could, you know, c- continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I mean, I think it's worth—I mean, it's worth noting that that Rauschenbusch has had his critics across the years, and even in more recent years, Rick Warren um, felt compelled to to criticize Rauschenbusch, which <laughs> which I think also um, is a kind of backwards way of pointing at the fact that he's an important figure, right? Well, the, it's also—I mean, it's just funny that Rick Warren, I, Rick Warren, for for Rick Warren, it was convenient to criticize Rauschenbusch because I think some people were criticizing Rick Warren for being too interested in social questions. So he's mm-hmm. like, oh no, I'm not like Rauschenbusch, and you know, of course, yeah. you know, I'm sure he's. Never read Rauschenbusch. He's just like trying to say, you know. I mean, yeah. I remember when I first released uh, Christianity: The Social Crisis, uh, the the 100th anniversary edition, and I contacted Brian McLaren and I said, "Hey, I'm not sure if you ever heard of Rauschenbusch, but you know, part I of the this, emerging and church movement, right, mm-hmm. right." And, and he said, "Oh, you know," he wrote me back this amazing email. Said, "I've heard of Rauschenbusch, and, and I heard all these sermons growing up about how awful he was and how mm-hmm. evil the social gospel was, and then I finally read it and I realized, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life." So he had come this half circle towards, you know. Wholeness, and and I myself had actually become a little, you know, more invested in the spiritual element hmm. of the gospel because of the way the trajectory my life took. You're saying you, that you or McLaren said that, or you... well, no, he, he, um, he, you know, he, he uh, Brian uh, McLaren he... said McLaren was uh, sorry, I I, I kind of lost the thread there, but um, McLaren said that he he had come. You know, kind of 180 degrees yeah. on on understanding, like you know, oh, this is so important. This this social element of the gospel is was the key to un, you know to to unleashing all of its potential. And for me, because I had grown up so much more in the social gospel tradition, for me, I had learned actually about the spiritual transformation on a personal level through oh. the 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 travels of my own life. Yeah. And and so, you know, we kind of actually created this whole circle together. Oh. I mean, say some more about that, about um, about yourself and that 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 trajectory for you. Um, yeah. Well, so. <laughs> so, you know, I went to college and I majored in religion and um, but I majored in religion because it was for sure going to be the one thing that I would never have to be a professional at because mm-hmm. I was very determined not to be a professional at anything. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, I, I also during that time and then 
I became much more interested in rock and roll and the rock and roll lifestyle. Afterwards, I went to Spain with a one-way ticket, started a rock. No, you know, and it sounds like so much fun when you tell it. It does, and it was fun. It was yeah. amazing. You know, I mean, it was, it, it, and you know, I started a, a rock and roll club and a, and, a, and a record company, all this stuff. And and while that was happening, I was becoming much more, you know, kind of. In, into the drug scene and alcohol and all of this kind of stuff. And so it was, you know, I eventually um, I moved back to the States and part of my history is just, you know, getting clean and mm-hmm. going to a, ha- a rough halfway house in South Boston and having a this old craggy Irish Catholic drunk woman, you know, uh, ex-drunk. I mean, she was a sober <laughs> drunk, but she, would, she, 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 you know, would put my shoes under my bed and she would say, and I was like, you know, Marilyn, why are you putting my shoes under my bed? And she says, I want you on your knees praying. Mm-hmm. And so, and the whole thing was this kind of transformation. I, that's when I started to pray again. And that's actually where I heard the Lord's prayer again. Oh. You know, because you pray that in, right. in AA. Thy kingdom come. And, Thy kingdom come. And so it was yeah. like this, oh, it became such a part of my life. Mm. And then to kind of go back, you know, later to go into seminary and see like what part of the, the Lord's prayer played in Rauschenbusch's life and his thinking and just realizing this is all a piece. Mm. This is all a part of the whole. Mm. And it was it, it was so beautiful. So for, for me, um, you know, it's it's been an ongoing process of, uh, a, you know, a beautiful discovery. And so you you went to Princeton, is this right, in 2003? Is that when you started working um, yeah, there? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, I had a, a series of different kinds of jobs. I worked uh-huh. at the Riverside Church, and okay. you know, I, I had worked as a chaplain in a drug rehab center in Brazil and all, all sorts of street kids in Seattle. <laughs> um, and, but I was uh, got called to serve as the Associate Dean of Religious Life in the chapel at Princeton in 2003, which was an incredible honor and privilege. And you know, I can imagine that um, that this you know this path that you'd walked, which was growing up with religion as an influence, leaving it behind, coming back with some curiosity. Um, that you know that that I think that that's a that's a pretty common trajectory in this culture. And um, I don't know. I'm just curious about what you discovered there. Um, at Princeton in the early 21st century um, about how these kids were interacting with religion, thinking about religion, and, and you know, how that, uh, how you also understood that in terms of your own journey and also this this legacy of Rauschenbusch, which, which I almost feel like you kind of embody as much as, uh, as know about. You're, you're like a 21st century version of him. I'm not sure what I'm asking, yeah, but let, let's talk about how how you then brought this life and legacy of yours then together with this life of students um, in our age? Well, at Princeton, I first of all, I felt very comfortable in the academic setting, given that my, both my grandparents and my parents were, my, were, were academics. And, and so like to be involved in the university, again, was very comfort, you know, within my comfort zone. Um, the great thing about religion at a place like Princeton is that the students really care about knowledge. They're very curious. 
they want to know. They're, they, um, they're not willing to, you know, kind of X anything out very quickly. And so I, one of the kind of daunting things was I never had to kind of say, hey, everybody, pay attention. I mean, they were there. You know, I mean, they were mm-hmm. interested and they were looking for authenticity. I think that the, what, the, what young people are looking for more than anything is authenticity. They want to know. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for truth. They're really trying to work these things out in a lot of different ways. And I found the interest in religion coming from all different religious traditions. I mean, one of the reasons that job was so perfect for me is that my closest cousins are my Jewish cousins. Mm. So I feel I have an interfaith heart. I mean, that's really just where I where I live. Um, so, so to be uh, in dialogue, I mean, for my first several years there, I was the liaison to the Muslim community, the liaison to the mm. Hindu community mm. and Buddhist community. This was great until we hired people much more care- capable that, that, uh, with, who are there in place now, You know, who I worked with to create a, a really beautiful, cohesive community. And that felt very much like continuing the legacy of Rauschenbusch is, is how do religions talk to one another? How can we work together? How do we recognize what is different about one another and, and also talk about what, what we have in common, what's beautiful about one another. So it was a, it was a great position for me. Um, and the students were eager. I mean, what's interesting is how much interest there is in religion on university campuses right. these days. I don't know that that story's really been told, but the people... Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, the, you know, there, the, there is incredible attendance in all different religious traditions. There's great interest. I mean, I, I had a group of about 25 um, students who applied to be on this interfaith council, and, you know, often we could only accept about 30% of the people who applied to be part of this interfaith council, which means that, and, and all of them were qualified. I mean, it, it just means that there was a hunger for these conversations, mm-hmm. for honest, truthful, authentic conversations. It was, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I, I always say that one of the reasons I'm so hopeful about the world is because I get to work. I got to work with students for a long time, and I, I feel like there's a lot of positive stuff that's, that's going on. Young people really, they want to... Um, they want to change the world. They want it to be positive. So, so I th- hopefully, hopefully those things will con- you know that will continue. I mean, I, I I feel very positive. And you know, you said this a, a minute ago, um, specifically talking about about young evangelicals. But I mean, I sense also generationally this this divide that in a way divided American Christianity a hundred years ago between an emphasis on the personal and an emphasis on the social. In a way, I feel like the, these new generations just aren't. They're not interested in holding those things apart, and, and in a way, I feel like the, the this term authenticity, the way they're using it, is about being integrated. I don't know. I mean, is that does that does that sound like yeah? What you well, I think the part of the the. The part of the what happens among young people in a place like Princeton or in any college is that you're interacting with people who are different from you. Mm-hmm. And the great opportunity there is to test things out. And I think a lot of, you know, truthfully, I think a lot of people come in and they have this idea, oh, I know what that is. I know, I, you know, and I don't like that. I don't like them until they actually <laughs> find them as their roommate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then they have to really deal with it and they have to understand, oh, this is a person who has a history and who has vulnerabilities. And so the great opportunity there was just to create a space where people could be authentic and vulnerable with one another. And it's very hard to hurt someone who has shown you vulnerability. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it, and, and that's what I think that you know, I experienced there also in such a kind of heightened intellectual atmosphere, which really you know, 
approves of curiosity, approves of uh, mm. exploration. And that's, I think we need more spaces like that in our churches and synagogues and mosques where we really approve of that kind of curiosity, where that's part of what we think of as a religious message rather than certainty. Actually, curiosity mm. is what defines a religious person. Mm. And and so what was it that kind of observation that 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 kind of motivated you eventually to float this idea of putting religion more explicitly <laughs> on the Huffington Post? I mean, how did how did that idea come to you? Well, you know, essentially what my role at Princeton was to say religion matters. It's mattered from the beginning of Princeton's history, and it still matters today, the religious voice is a very important voice to have at the table. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was writing for Huffington Post, and uh, I didn't know where to place my pieces. You hmm. know, they weren't just political. They weren't just kind of spiritual. The arts. You know, yeah. Yeah, they weren't the arts. Yeah. They weren't living. So, so um, I just you know, I wrote Ariana an email, and I just said, hey, you're not doing religion. You have to do religion. Uh, you know, religion is too important. And she wrote right back and said, I totally get it. And we just <laughs> made it happen. And so, you know, since that time, which is two years ago, religion has just flourished on the site. It's just been an amazing part of the conversation. And you can't not have religion at the table when you're talking about, you know, improving civic society or, or really talking about things that matter deeply to people. Religion matters to a majority of American people and a majority of people worldwide, and you can't just kind of sidestep it. You have to really embrace it. And so it's been an amazing opportunity to interact with just so many wonderful minds from so many different traditions. So it, it really is kind of a continuation of what I started at Princeton and, and what I hope to do with my life. And, you know, I think you made the point, in, uh, it was in February of 2010 that you launched and you wrote this kind of open letter on Huffington Post called Dear Religious and Sane America. Um, and you made the point in there that, as you said, you'd been writing for Huffington Post. There were plenty of religious figures and religious people who were writing for Huffington Post. But this was so in a way of um, making it visible, I suppose, and, and creating a more expansive and integrated discussion. Right. It was it was to actually kind of name it and give it yeah. a you know give it a space, and I should say that m many of the religion writers who maybe get signed up as religion may have a post on the arts or may have a post about uh, politics or may have a post about the arts, and they can or, or uh, they can place their stuff anywhere. It's not to kind of sequester. It's not to ghettoize it. It's just to say, hey, here's a real place where we're having an amazing discussion, and if you go on the religion page, you'll immediately understand what's going on, which is it's a pluralistic site. It's a site that takes religion seriously. It's a site that has a lot of different voices, that deals with a lot of different questions. It's not necessarily a site about religion. It is a, it is religion. So hmm. it's a hmm. it's an amazing, you know, it was an amazing opportunity in some ways to convene the kind of discussion that I was trying to create at Princeton, but to convene it on a much broader, you know, national and worldwide scale. So you, um, from those earliest days, committed yourself openly to um, to convening a discussion that was going to that was going to happen between the the strident poles of um, strident religious voices on one end and um, strident voices, as you named, on the atheist side who denigrate religious people and their traditions. But but you're doing this on 
on Huffington Post, which itself has you know, a very, let, let's say, a liberal reputation um, and can take a, a very um, liberal, strident tone, I think some people would say. I mean, how do you, how do you walk that line? Um, is that a challenge? You know, we don't really, you know, I, honestly, it's not about left, right, liberal, conservative. In some ways, it's about trying to figure out, like, how do you live life well? I mean, we do have people who come in with really hardcore uh, political views, and then they say, and Jesus said, love your neighbor. And I'm always like, that's kind of lazy. You know, I mean, <laughs> let's really actually start with what Jesus said. And then, like, if whatever evolves from that, but I really sometimes say, you know, it's not okay. What I'm not looking for is just, like, political view plus Jesus. It has to be, like, really, it, you know, more and more I'm getting, I'm getting a, a much broader kind of audience and mm-hmm. much broader kind of writing, um, you know, uh, bloggers who are really interested in being a part on the same page, not necessarily agreeing with, but on the same page as people who think differently. And so we're really trying to get beyond this kind of left, right. Um, you know, the, I'm actually, the one thing I really don't like on the page is is like people who are just so stridently anti-religion that they're just like all religious people are idiots. I mean, that's a, that a lot just, of the comment, the comments. Yeah, we have a lot of comments mm-hmm. like that. I don't think that, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, the women's section of the site wouldn't have like blatant misogynists. I mean, you know, we, we, mm. we don't have to have people who just hate religion and think, you know, simplistic ideas that religion is the source of all evil. I mean, that's just But what's, non- what's that about? I mean, where, where do you nonsense. see that coming from in our culture? Because it is well, a cultural what voice. What it is is, yeah, it is. It's an, it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's good to have a skeptical voice. It's good to have, um, uh, to have a voice that says, okay, what does this really mean? And, and how do we how do we understand, you know, your religious perspective in a country that is a, is pluralistic and, and includes people who have no faith or to, who do not share your faith? That's a really important voice to have. People who just out and out denigrate people who, who do have faith, who mm-hmm. just, you know, from A to Z, it's just like all religious people are idiots. I won't listen to you, um, period. Uh, you know, and, and, and repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think that's productive. I do think it stems out of, you know, I, you never, I always kind of wonder, I wish I could like, you know, what happened to you? You know, I mean, why are you so like? I I have a lot of friends who are who who are not religious. That's not the question. It's why is this your point to take on religion in such a, a, a you know a kind of vitriolic way? And I think it must have something to do with their own background or or, or where they came from and you know damage that happened. That's totally understandable. But it's just it's not part of a productive conversation. Uh, it, and so it is a kind of stridency though that resides more. On the liberal, you know, whatever these labels mean in in American secular liberal culture, though, isn't it? Or, I don't know. Do we? Even I, know I, I, yeah. I mean, I that may be that may be the case now. It certainly wasn't the case with you know Martin Luther King Jr. or you know yeah. other people. They, you know, I mean, there there, there is like you know. Hmm. I just I think it's a fairly recent phenomenon. But the idea of you know. 
liberal versus religious is just a crazy dichotomy. Uh, and it, it doesn't take into account any of the actual history of America. Uh, so, so it may be something that's happening now. I mean, when I, you know, but, but it certainly is not the standpoint of, you know, I mean, I have to say Ariana has been so supportive of, of what we're doing and, and you know, that everybody you know, just has understood that this is a really important part of the conversation. And if you actually read, you know, what's on the site, it's very, it's so beautiful and so important. And so just to have a blanket anti-religious is, it, uh, to me, to me, it, it kind of just smacks of laziness. But, um, but, but then again, you know, I, you know, I, I, it's it's a lot of it you know i want to say one other thing about that you mm-hmm. know that there are atheists who are interested in interfaith conversations and there are secularists who really want to be part of a conversation about meaning and i think that's important i do i what i want is to make sure that it's not just hey um it's important to have an anti-religious voice or a non-religious voice. I always want to know, okay, so what are the secularists bringing to the table? Mm-hmm. Like in one terms of my of cousins positive re- content. Well, in terms of tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my, my cousin Dick Rorty, who wrote the afterword to the Christianity Social Crisis, was a very famous secular humanist who was, you know, a philosopher um, and a pragmatist and, and, you know, one of the one of the most well-known philosophers of the 20th century. And, and he was... An amazing man. I would love. I love to hear him talk. I love to hear his ideas. I thought it was so important what he had to say. So what I'm, I, what I'm looking for for people who are not religious or who are come from a secular humanist tradition is, bring it. Bring what your tradition has to say. Where do you find your roots? Everybody has roots in some tradition. We, one of the one of the things I always said about my work at, at Princeton was, you know, figure out what you believe and why you believe it. Hmm. And do you think that's a challenge for for modern people? I mean, I feel like yeah. there's a few generations here, especially ones that you and I were growing up, where where it was actually not an intelligent, educated thing to have deep convictions and present them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Be- because, in fact, it might work against tolerance and pluralism. Right. I think that, that you know, that, that the, the idea of, um, I mean, in some ways it, it ties into this idea of, okay, we're, we're all, I, what do I want to say about that? It's, I mean, just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm just trying to think like we're the seventies and the eighties, you know, it was post sixties. It was like, what, you know, what are we, what are we really about? You know I mean? Are we about disco or about not disco sucks? You know I mean? I just don't remember it being, you know, a time of, um, of, of real engagement. It was a little, there was a little bit of a cynicism around it because, you know, it was post Watergate. It was, you know, um, I, I think that, Maybe the 90s and, and certainly after uh, 2001, we had to start taking things more seriously and, and taking – we became a much more globally aware, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, and really understanding that, that what, <laughs> what's happening around the world actually does affect us. And, and religion is a big part of that. And, mm-hmm. and so 
but but in our pers- interpersonal conversations, people never talked about religion. I didn't even. I, only later did I figure out that a couple of my good friends in high school were Jewish. We just never talked about it, right? You know, and so I think hopefully there's a conversation that is actually happening, so we can actually learn from one another in a in a deeper way. I don't know. And and it and and didn't know how to talk about it, right? I mean, didn't actually right. have a robust, intelligent uh, vocabulary for talking about it outside. The confines well, we of were our told not to talk about right, it. Right, right. You know, religion is something you don't talk about, uh, and and so it was, it, we privatized it in such a way that that we didn't have the language to talk about it. Um, and I think that that was a polite way to to interact. But but going, it's it's such an amazing thing. The moment you ask someone like, "What do you really believe? What is you know what do you, what is your tradition?" Ugh, it opens everything up. And you really get so much deeper. And so it's, you know, I always kind of helped my, you know, people, you know, the students at Princeton just, you know, it's so easy just to say, what tradition did you come from? What do you really believe about that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things, yeah, keep going. Just, you know, one of the things I would say at Princeton, you know, about, about you know, to be uh, an educated leader in the world, you have to be able to say what you believe. And just as importantly, you have to be able to understand what someone's talking about when they talk about what they believe. So you have to have some sort of, you know, you have to be able to understand religious speak from different religious uh, com- uh, traditions. And it's really important uh, today that everyone have a working knowledge of the basics of Islam, the basics of Judaism, the basics of Hinduism, just just so they can talk to people across, you know, religious uh, divides and, and be able to say, hey, have a great Eid, you know, Eid Mubarak. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it goes such a long way. So... I, I think you're getting at something that actually is quite striking when you when you go to the Huffington Post religion site. And there's there's a lot a lot going on there, but it, it, um, some of you know there's a lot of stuff that's very straightforward um, that I hadn't thought about it this way. But it, it does it is along the lines of developing a vocabulary and a basic knowledge, right? What is Sharia and why does it matter? What does the Bible actually say about gay marriage? Um, You've told me that uh, some of the things, some of the pieces that get passed around the most are are about scripture. About yeah. <laughs> tell me about yeah. that. I mean, what gets Isn't passed that amazing? around? Well, tell yeah. me. Yeah, it's 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 you know some of the you know we started doing these pieces where it was you know just what does the Bible say about women? What is you know all these you know what is the Bible? You know, one of the biggest pieces to date is this piece that said you know five things you should know about the Bible, and you know, so it's it's basically giving people a you know the the the, the format is very brief, very succinct. It ha- you know it has to be, and so it's very interesting to see academics kind of ter- turn themselves into bloggers uh, because huh. what what they're supposed to do in the academy is be very long and be very very you know go very deep into something very small and. And what I'm trying to do is to actually, hopefully, you know, lure the <laughs> the academy into the conversation about what about religion. And so, so these these pieces that are, you know, it's very important to to for me to have intelligent voices about what scripture is. And so, you know, to have a piece about Sharia law, I mean, we were, we're talking about Sharia all the time as if we know what it is. Hmm. And mm-hmm. so we better know what it is. 
And so to get the foremost scholar on Sharia to write a piece about it so that we can actually have an intelligent conversation about it. I mean, you have to know. One of the things, one of the traditions that I love from the, the Brandeis household was if they would, they would be having a conversation, and if they didn't know a fact, they would actually stop and look it up until they before they continued whereas and they didn't even have ipads right no they didn't have an ipad (laughs) they would actually go to the encyclopedia you know i mean it's really very funny you know i mean and our tendency is just to go okay well whatever let's you know let's keep going no i mean the opportunity here with the internet is that it's you can if you're if you know how to sift through a lot of the garbage that's on the internet you can find real knowledge and Mm -hmm. that's part of what my job, I feel my this ministry. That's the reason I'm doing this. Is it feels like a calling, is is to push as much positive, as much productive, as much intelligent information out into the web as possible. Hmm. What what else has surprised you? Either that's come in, or that that people have read and commented on and passed around in that online world. I think what's been interesting for me, you know, we've have we do have these all these you know comments that come in and very kind of vicious, you know, you know, it's like a very kind sometimes of mean a big and, contrast between the the high tone of the the, the blog pieces yeah, and the yeah, low yeah, tone like of the, the commentary. Fight that happens on the comments. Yeah. But what was interesting for me personally to experience was the, when I had the tragedy and my nephew died, and it was just a, just a heartrending thing. And I, I published my the the eulogy I gave in, in honor of Sam. And um, he was and, a young man, right? Twenty. Yeah, he was twenty. I mean, it was just awful. Uh, and he, you know, and it was, you know, it was, it was, I, I made myself vulnerable. It's very clear. And um, and the comments were so amazing because they were talking about, you know, people who they lost. And then there was this one person who wrote, like, "Well, I'm sorry about your nephew, but you know, God is a fairy tale, and you shouldn't." And the rest of the commenters all kind of ganged up on him and said, "This mm-hmm. is what are you doing?" Mm-hmm. You know, so there is a soul out there, you know. And <laughs> and I think that I no, but I think that, that that what's been interesting for other pieces like that when people are vulnerable. And, you know, people will pass it along and say, did you see this? Because we're all hurting. Left, right, it doesn't matter. People hurt. People go through pain. People, you know, are, are tr- looking for um, for some some sense that they're not alone. And those kind of pieces do really well as, uh, uh, also because they, you know, people say, hey, you know, I know you're going through, you know, I wrote another piece about my mother who has Alzheimer's. And, and, and people pass that piece around a lot. So, so there, you know... You can you. It's not just kind of you know knowledge or kind of you know ideas. It's it's also about you know the truth of of life, the truth of what people are going through. And if you can convey that, um, I think it's respected on the web. It's interesting. I mean, you hear a lot about the web as this free for all. I mean that that it's too much information. I mean it's open to an extreme. But I don't know that I've heard people talking about vulnerability online. And I wonder if you think maybe that, because say one thing I'm, I really treasure in religious traditions that I think is in contrast to our culture is that they actually honor human vulnerability and, you know, meet us there and ask us to make sense there. And do you think that it's because of the subject matter of Huffington Post religion, um, 
that may be something special in terms of people showing vulnerability and responding to it online becomes possible. That's what I, that's what I'm hoping for. I mean, uh-huh. I think of yeah, I think of prayer services where people say, you know what, I've lost my job and I'm really I just need prayer. You know, I mean, I I used to when I worked at Riverside, we would have you know prayer services like that. And so what I would like is you know is is for people to have that sense of meeting someone there, even if they're not of the same religion, even if they're not of you know don't agree on many social issues. If I, I want people to to actually feel like there's a <laughs> a basic humanity uh, to the site and a basic you know that they're going to learn something if they may if they allow themselves to learn something by going there and that's been a big you know it's been a big push so you're going to learn something about Yom Kippur or uh, Ramadan if you if you read about we had an ongoing series every day this uh, this imam wrote about Ramadan and about what he was going through and about the thoughts and the difficulties and all this kind of stuff and it was very personal and very beautiful and I was following it, and I was just like, wow, this is such an insight into someone else's heart uh, that is from a completely different religious tradition than mine. And it felt like an honor to be able to read it. And, I, and that's, that's the, the hope and the possibility of, of a, a place like Huffington Post religion uh, for me, and that's, I'm, I'm trying to cultivate that. So what happens when um, conservative evangelicals write on Huffington Post religion? Um. It's fine. I mean, the big, you know, the big thing is, you know, the, the I have had very conservative evangelicals. Yeah, write. I know you have. And and they write beautiful pieces about, you know, trying to t- trying to make a way where there is no way. Or you know, I had uh, T D Jakes wrote a piece about, you know, wrote a beautiful prayer for nine eleven. Um, he's no one would consider him a liberal theologian or pastor. Um, you know, there, there, we have we have a lot of more conservative um, religious voices on the site, um, and so, you know, people that that's where because they tend to be very unapologetic about their faith. You know, you'll have a lot of more um, of the atheists come at them and say, "Well, this is ridiculous," uh, because that's the kind of their full. Part full job at night apparently is to uh, ridicule other people's faith, but um, it's it, it's it, it's not um, it hasn't been a problem. I mean, there are you know the truth is we're you know we're we're basically you know we do celebrate uh, same sex couples, we celebrate you know you know the full humanity of LGBT people, and so so I think that more conservative people aren't aren't going to write you know a big anti gay screed on mm-hmm. Huffington Post because they know that's not we're not we're not really the place for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are a place for you know again, you know I have I have Rich Stearns who's the head of Worldwide um, for uh, World Vision, mm-hmm. which is a, you know conservative evangelical Christian social uh, uh, aid group around the world and it's a very important group and it does amazing work now he's not going to agree on the gay issue but he writes every month about like you know where he sees you know the you know the he needs to shine a spotlight on some place in the world that is suffering and we love his pieces and Mm. they run on the front page Mm. and there's that echo just you know back where we started with 
a kind of spirit of Walter Rauschenbusch and um, of, of, of kind of the kernel of the social gospel turning up in unexpected or just new places today, 21st century. Yeah. I would love to think that I'm carrying on the legacy in some ways. Mm. Um, I wonder from... Uh, from your perspective as doing this online blogging and and convening, um, also just from your time as a chaplain at Princeton, which is not that long ago, um, and living in New York City and running in the circles in which you do, I mean, how um, how are you watching the religious dynamics in the this presidential election year? Uh, what are you seeing that feels important, or maybe less important than it's than it's being played out? I don't, I don't, I'm not really, you know, I, I don't know how you might be observing that, but I'm just curious about what's on your mind. How are you tempering what you hear in the coverage, or what do you think might be going on that's interesting but people are not paying attention to? Anything comes to mind? Come to mind? Well, it's interesting because I, I, you know. Every day there's like kind of a story about one of the Republican nominees and their religion. And yet it always seems to kind of fade. Um, and so I yeah. don't think that, you know, you know, oh, the Mormons, you know, oh, you know, Rick Perry and his, you know, his big prayer service. And, and at the time it felt really important. It doesn't seem actually to be the operating factor Mm-hmm. In the you know in the in the nomination at this moment, I don't I, you know I, I think that you know maybe evangelicals kind of have their favorites, but I, you know I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, even saying the word evangelical no longer really carries the same resonance as it did eight years ago. So I I'm not sure where we're at with it. I think it's still playing out. I don't I don't see it conclusive. For me, it's really important just to take people for what they say and not to read into their religious background too much. I, my whole thing with how, how, we are under, or how we are to understand people's religion is basically, I want, if you define it for me and if you tell me um, how that's going to affect the way you're going to govern, then it's fair game. Mm-hmm. But if, it, if it's just something that's in your background, you can't, you can't know how those things will play out uh, as as part of people's governing strategy, unless they are explicit about it. And so that's I always I'm I'm looking for people to be a little cautious when making big statements about uh, how people's religion will factor into their um, their run as president. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think it's going to probably heat up in the few months that yeah. to come and, and people will maybe um, make it more of an issue but so far I don't see it as a, a as so important mm-hmm. you know it's you know who knows what will happen in the general election I think a lot of things will come into question again about um, President Obama's faith and uh, whoever the president the Republican nominee is and is that you know are we voting our are we voting our faith, basically? Uh, that'll be interesting to see. And what do you feel, you know, what have you learned? What new sense or ideas do you have about American religious life? Not politics, but the religious life in this country. 
how has this experience of Huffington Post religion, of working on this online, in fact, creating a new space for this, um, what, what do you know now or what feels more important to you that you didn't see before, didn't grasp before? I think how eager everyone is to be on the same page. And to I be mean on the that same kind page. of hmm. not this not thinking the same thing, mm-hmm. but being together on the same page. Hmm. I see. Like, <laughs> yeah, on the you same know, page. I that's yeah. A, a, yeah by page I mean the Huffington <laughs> the Post page. religion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So I you know kind of intentionally made that a little confusing because uh-huh. what what every I, I haven't met any um, very few people don't want to be on the page. The question is. Um, are we willing to be <laughs> on the same page? Uh-huh. And I think some people that, you know, are just not. And they really are so strong in one idea. Um, you know, I think we see this around questions of, you know, where, where, what's the role of pluralism in American society? How are we going to understand um, our Muslim neighbors? You know, how are we going to deal with... Um, with the true humanity of you know, gay people, you know all of these things that are that are um, in the mix, but for the most part, people really do want to be on the same page. So that's where I see kind of what's yeah. It actually is very hopeful to me. Mm-hmm. I'm very I'm very positive about it. I see how much you know you know you know the the Sikhs, the Hindus, the Buddhists, you know, all, everybody is kind of you know looking to to have a voice, to be a part of a, a general conversation. And I, I'm hoping that that you know that that actually reflects what's going on in America. I think that but but I think that in some ways that there is a there's a question there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's and it's essentially it's the question of does everybody want to, be on the page (laughs) or are there some people who just you know kind of refuse to be in the same space as people who they view as other but you know i think something that's worth teasing out is uh you know when you say on the same page i think it can um not this new online way, but the old way. It it can suggest agreement, and it can it can suggest at least kind of a surface agreement that may not be oh, yeah. very rich or interesting. But but one of the emphases for you, I mean, I think personally as well as as an editor, is that you really and maybe this is well the Walter Rauschenbusch uh, gene in you also that you really want people to be grounded in their texts and traditions. And so, I mean, it's interesting that that you can create this diverse space, um, but there's so much going on that is about that kind of, of grounding um, in, in one's yeah. own beliefs as well as, as yeah. you said, the curiosity about others and that yeah, there's no I mean, contradiction it, there. No, no. In fact, I'm always, it's very funny because I'm always saying, uh, this is really interesting, but could you make it uh, more religion-y? Right. Uh, you know, like, could you really, like, I think people, you know, sometimes when people approach me initially, they think they have to kind of uh, erase out the specificity mm-hmm. in order to make it kind of okay for everyone. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, 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 no. It'll be much more interesting for everyone if you go deep into the, what your specific tradition is. Mm-hmm. That'll be a much more interesting read for me. I don't, I, I want to know actually what the Hindu roots of your understanding of, of um, you know, of life or loss. Or I, I really want you to reference the richness of your tradition. 
so that I can so that I can learn. Mm-hmm. So I'm always kind of going. You know, it's very it's very funny. Like it, it, people are surprised, but that's my standard line. This is good, but it could be a little more religiony. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and by religiony, I just mean go deep into your tradition. Don't be shy about it. And and I think one of the one of the, the sad things, I guess, about my my own kind of upbringing, and this is not my parents' fault. Believe me, I'm the one who skipped confirmation. But how um, you know, just how but maybe generationally. It may be generation, but I, but I, I do, you know, I think that the idea of going deep into scripture, going deep into tradition, and finding its richness is is something that that is, you know, I want to make sure that the, you know, the main the, the mainline church, which is you know my tradition, make sure that they they appreciate how important it is to to know the Bible, to get deep into the Bible, to get to know you know the great thinkers, the great sages, the great wisdom um, teachers of our own tradition. Uh, and then you can go out and 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 be a conversant when you talk to um, a, a Jewish person who has done the same thing in their tradition. It'll make the conversation way more interesting. Mm-hmm. And coming back to something you said about your students at Princeton and that virtue of authenticity, I, I, I do feel like this is this is something that that those generations are calling all of us to. Um, which is not a they're completely committed to pluralism and they have no choice right that's the world they're growing up in but but uh they're all about showing who you are in your depths and being searching there right being absolutely and what's there. cool is like when they come into a pluralistic situation where they're expected to talk to a person of different tradition they actually, I mean, people have this idea that, oh, interfaith work is going to make you lose their faith. Well, mm-hmm. it's often just the opposite. You say, oh, gosh, I wish I knew more about what my tradition said about that. Mm-hmm. Let me go back and look. And it's an opportunity to grow. I mean, that's the reason I always say, if you, if you, interfaith um, dialogue, at least at Princeton, and I think most places, are for peop- is for people who take religion seriously. And who people who take big ideas seriously and who want to go deeper, and so it, it and who it take often, their own traditions really seriously, and it forces them to do because yes. people are like, okay, so uh, what is it? You know, what is it? So what does a Jewish person think about that? And they're like, uh, let me get back to you on that. I mean, you know, you, you want to make sure that you 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 begin to know, and, and it's it's exciting. And again, it goes back to this curiosity. Curiosity about the other, but curiosity about where you come from, where, you know, what is your tradition, learning from your grandparents, learning from where, where did you come from? What's the intellectual tradition you come from? What's the spiritual tradition you come from? And just to speak to that eagerness, too, um, I just remember looking at, say, for example, a video piece you did where you you just went out on the street and you asked people about prayer, right? About their prayer lives. Yeah. What was the question you asked? What do you? Oh, I just said, what do you think about prayer? <laughs> yeah, and how do you pray? Did you? But so was, well, that was a you know, follow up. You know, it was basically, you, I just was like, you know, yeah. hey, um, you know, want to want to, you know, what 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 do you think about prayer? You but know, what was, was so really, interesting is how people engage that question. Right. So, so differently. So, yeah. yeah. So there is the fact that we haven't known how to talk about this and we haven't talked about it. But it's like when you just walked up to people and asked that simple question, they were yeah, absolutely ready to go there with you. And oh, we yeah. shared and much you know, more than I expected in every case. Oh, yeah. And there was so much more that, you know, of course, we couldn't include like, you know, like always. But it was just it was amazing. And it was very, you know, you just kind of sense that 
people wanted to talk for a long time about it. You know, and, yeah. and that's what that's what everybody's walking around with, mm. uh, kind of a, a hunger to have this conversation about what's dear to them. Mm. Um, and even if it's not dear to them, you know, it's like, I don't pray. Like one person just was like, she wanted to talk. She was like, I, I don't pray. I, I'm agnostic. But, you know, but I think it's this, you know, I mean, it was yeah. just it was very beautiful. It was mm. like an engagement with an idea. And that's people they have a lot to say. We have so much to learn from one another. Mm. Um. I, w- I wanted to quote uh, quote you some lines of your your great grandfather Walter Walter Rauschenbusch. We we started out talking about um, religion is a tremendous generator of self sacrificing action. If the hydraulic force of religion could be turned toward conduct, there is nothing which it could not accomplish. Mm. I I really like that. Mm. I've thought and I've said openly. Um, so Walter Rauschenbusch was part of this American world a hundred years ago, where, um, in fact, people, the forebears of today's evangelicals. I mean, he he was one of them. But then there was a, a path that forked away and said we need to be concerned about personal salvation and and not be involved in in public life. And and then uh, Christian voices, in particular, re-entered public life and political life in a big way in this country a few decades ago. Um, but it the what we it, it's not associated with with conduct it's associated with issues right um which partly had to do with i think what people had to do to uh or chose to do to make themselves powerful in the political realm but i wondered i mean when you hear those lines about this hydraulic force of religion um could be if it could be turned toward conduct. There's nothing which it could not accomplish. Now, do you, do you believe that? And 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 what it, what the, what does that suggest to you? What would you like to see that look like? Uh, I think it's such an interesting quote, and I I guess for me, it's you know, part of the history is is following the trajectory from from Rauschenbusch to Niebuhr to King, as well as seeing. You know the divergence of people who left and then came back, and part of what I see today is you know the power of religion is not just about like the hydraulic push, but it's also the in some ways to hold back. You know what? How, how does religion force me not to seek out more things, mm. more power, mm. more money? How does it, I think in some ways what he was talking about there is that religion has a power to make us put other things in front of our own drive towards accumulation, drive towards me, me, me. Mm. And so the power of religion in some ways is to choose not to do it. Um, Whether that's, you know, I will not pick up a gun I will not, you know, I will, I will not um, destroy the environment. You know, I will not bully. <laughs> hmm. You know, I mean, the, hmm. the power of religion is to say, to actually offer a transcendent vision of what's more than just me. What's more than just my own needs and my own goals. And to say, actually, I have to look at this with a bigger vision. And that's, you know, for Rauschenbusch and... And for me, it's it's still you know, what does the kingdom of heaven look like? What is this? You know, what are we? What what is a wider vision that will allow me to live my life in accordance with a higher ethic? That um, 
and and religion can can do that it can help people it just you know part of the the effort here is to figure out how to navigate the religious voice so that it really does that in a responsible way um, and a way that is is beneficial to to everyone I know that in that early um, that letter in February 2010 where you where you where you introduced um, Huffington Post religion you you also um, and and since then you've talked about the wanting it to be a place where religious and non-religious people can in fact interact and that that non-religious people are 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 ethical and moral um, beings as well um, and do, do you think has that happened and do you see that as um, you know, as something that's also evolving at this point, um, as we move through the 21st century, that that some of these important ethical discussions are also happening across that divide, not not different religious people, but religious and non-religious. Absolutely. I, I see, you know, the idea that religious people have some sort of monopoly on morality is, is, is absurd. Uh, but, but again, you know, the question is, is like, okay, so where does your morality come from? You know, and, and, you know, again, I bring in my uh, cousin, Richard Rorty, who had such a clear sense of where he was coming from and what he was drawing upon. He was a secular atheist. He was a secular humanist Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and frankly, a boogeyman for a lot of, you know, the religious right. Uh, um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, but... But he, you know, he he cared so deeply about people and the pragmatist tradition and how we were going to get better and how we were going to keep moving forward. And that was someone who I just wanted to work side by side. I wish I could do half of what he accomplished. And so um, so there's 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 the opportunity here to really learn from one another and to really grow um I have something to learn from the pragmatist philosophical tradition. You know, uh, a great friend of mine and mentor is Cornel West, who also, you know, is came out of that tradition, was a student of Dick Rorty's. Hmm. Um, so, so he's someone who is a professing Christian and also a pragmatist. We we have much to learn from one another. These are not the idea of things being discrete traditions that never touch one another. Just it doesn't. It, that's just not true. It's not historically accurate. And so we always have to be learning from one another. And so the, for me, it's really about respect. Who comes to the table with respect? Do you respect me? Will I respect you? Can we talk? Um, and that's, you know, that's what, I, that's what I'm hoping to foster. And I think we've touched on this and circled around, around it, but I just want to ask, um, you know, what, what does this online sphere which is almost like another sphere in our common life, a huge, hugely important one. How does it, uh, what does it make possible that wasn't possible for? And, and, and how does it change um, or infuse the religious, what we've thought of as the religious sphere? The Internet is basically neutral. It's what we bring to it. I think, you know, the internet can be a source of great destruction. I mean, people can find so much misinformation on the web. I mean, if you just, you know, type in Jew or Jewish and you can find a neo-Nazi site very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so what you bring to it makes a huge amount of difference. But at the same time, it does allow you to investigate things that maybe you never could have known about without it. 
So if you go, you, you can learn about people who you never thought you could learn about because they don't live in your neighborhood or you never had the opportunity to interact with them. So what the opportunity is, is to really, it's information and it's a engagement with people who have different experiences and you can learn very quickly about what's going on in the famine in Africa. Mm-hmm. We don't have an excuse anymore. And so, so, so I think the internet can be a great tool for bringing people together to creating solidarity. I mean, look at the, the way the internet was used in the Arab Spring and, and uh, continues to be used in different ways in, in, in building solidarity movements. But it can also, you know, be a, a very um, vitriolic and, and, and a place where people get lured into very much the wrong paths. I mean, I think it's a major breeding ground for extremism in all our traditions, and we have to, we have to be vigilant about how the internet is used. And right. that's again. So there, it's really what we do with it. It's not. I don't think it's one thing, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like, is it this, you know, the sphere that Teilhard de Chardin, uh, you know, kind of predicted that there would be this, you know, universal brain that would happen? I don't know. I mean, is that mm-hmm. is that what the internet is that that we will actually are be are able to really talk with more people all the time? Uh, it's very, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's interesting. I mean, we're just at the beginning stages of what this is going to be. Mm-hmm. So um, how has this experience so far, this interactive online religious life that you live in foster, um, you know, how, how has it, I think this is a very hard question to answer. I hate it when people ask me this, but I'm going to do it to you anyway. Yeah, how, how, do, how does it flow into your sense of faith and your, you know, how has it changed your sense of the place of religion, faith in our common life? It's interesting. I come at this work as a minister. You know, I'm 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 not kind of a journalist. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not. That's not my primary uh, sense of who I am. Is it's I, my primary sense of who I am is is as a minister as a minister. So, um, so I I try to view it as a ministry, um, and you know and. And, and trying to foster this just like I would at, you know, Princeton or, or somewhere else. Um, but how do I, how does it affect me personally yeah, as a very, is kind of a harder question. It's hard because you realize how much is out there. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like, you know, all day long I'm reading opinions about what people think about the world and about the the ultimate questions um and you know what i have to be on guard against and i think um we all do is kind of saying okay yeah that's just that you know kind of in some ways you know making it too simple Mm. when these things are so complex Uh, and so, so what I'm, you know, what I have to remember is that these all, all of, all of it represents lives, and and I have to make sure that I'm taking care of myself, and I'm going, you know, being a part of some sort of spiritual community or or. or or tradition, so that I, so that I, it doesn't just become sort of oh, process the information. It becomes actually like remembering that each one of these people is a child of God, and and you know honoring them uh, with what they have to say. Hmm. 
But it's 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 tough because it's a very fast paced uh, place, and you know it's a it's 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 a you know we're yeah, Huffington Post is a major organization, yeah. and uh, and so it's you know it's a it's. It, I, you know, I have to be very careful about how I approach it and 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 keep uh, keep my soul steady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been great, Paul. Thank you so much. I hope so. Yeah. I, you know, I hope I, I, I hope it's. Uh, I I wasn't sure what you really you know had in mind, and you know, uh, but I, was it okay? For me, it was great. Okay. I just didn't <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. No, it's really fun. I I don't know exactly um, what you know what when we're gonna do this or what we're gonna do with it right yeah. away. But so we'll we'll let you know, and I'm I'm sure I'll be in touch with you in any case. Oh yeah, excellent. All well, right, it's thank great you. Great talking to you. Always. Yeah, you too. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.